Well, I really appreciated what you had to say, Brandon, and I think that's a great, that's going to stick with me, a wildly generous disciple of Christ. That's good. You know, it, it, it's a good reminder, too, that, you know, even being here on Sunday morning is something that we probably take for granted more than we should. Um, the privilege that we have and just the blessing that this time is together. Some of us come in after a hard week. Some of us come after a good week. But no matter what reason or what preceded us, it's always good to be here with people that you love and spend life with. And so let's not ever take that for granted. Um, how many of y'all remember the old Kenny Rogers song, The Gambler, right? Yeah, everybody remembers The Gambler. Remember that famous chorus of his? You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away. Some of you are singing it, aren't you? I like it. There's actually some good life truth in that song, other than the gambling part, of course. But uh, you got to know when to walk away. You got to know when to run. Sometimes just as important as knowing when to run is knowing where to run. Because you can oftentimes make a bad situation worse by running to the wrong thing. You can jump out of the frying pan and into the fire, as the saying goes. Kind of reminds me of, uh, that wasn't part of the illustration there, that little ditty. I don't know where that came from. It reminds me of a story of a a young mom who had four young kids. Kind of lived out in the country. They had some acreage, but still neighbors were close enough to go over and visit. And so... One day, she uh, had the kids out playing in the front yard, saw her neighbor, and decided she'd go over and visit a little bit, walks over to her neighbor's house. They're having a great conversation. Kids are having a big time. They do what kids do. They uh, chase butterflies, eat dirt, you know, fun stuff like that, purely occupied, having a good time. So they're carrying on this conversation, and then all of a sudden, it gets real quiet across the street. Now, if you've got four young kids, typically, that's not a good thing, Right? And so it catches her attention, and this young mom looks across the street to see her four little kids just enamored with the cutest little kittens you've ever seen. They were black and white, almost identical, and she just thought, oh, how sweet. And then she realized, those aren't little kittens. Those are little baby skunks. And so in a panic, she runs towards her kids and says, kids, run, run. So they each pick up a skunk and take off in opposite directions. That's out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? They ran. They just took their problems with them. And I think maybe, maybe as, I, as I think about how Paul is closing up this letter to Titus, maybe that's why he's so deliberate in kind of these final words as he's bringing this letter to a conclusion because he seems to be real deliberate. And you'll see this as we look at our passage this morning. seems to be real deliberate about what we should run to what we should run from, and then what we should reject altogether. And his message continues this theme that has been throughout the, re- the, the letter to Titus, and it's this, this theme of healthy relationships, how biblical community adorns the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Paul knows that a big part of who we are is based on who we spend time with. See, our lives are shaped by relationships. Sometimes they bring out the best in us. Sometimes they're good when they encourage us towards love and good deeds. Sometimes they bring out the worst in us 
Because bad company corrupts good morals. But for better or for worse, the reality is we are shaped by the relationships that we have with people. Those bonds impact the people that we become. For example, there is no doubt in my mind that my relationship with Terry has made me a better person. Our marriage has made me a better man. It's, it's taught me to, to surrender my independence. And Terry has been so patient when I cling to so much of that selfishness that still remains. But I've seen her sacrifice for the good of someone else. And that includes me. And I do believe that I understand the love of Christ more clearly Because of what I've experienced in my relationship with Terry. I believe I know God better because she is in my life. We're all shaped by relationships. We're impacted by our parents. We're influenced by our friends. Sometimes for better. Sometimes for worse. But either way, relationships undeniably impact the people we become. And I think this morning, Paul is going to take that point and point us towards what is good and profitable. These are the relationships or people that we should run to. And then he's also going to warn us about relationships that he says are unprofitable and worthless. These are people, these are relationships that we should run from. And then he's going to speak to the danger of divisive individuals and these are relationships that we should avoid altogether. because if our goal is to live our life in a way that honors the Lord then we need to spend time with people who draw us closer to Christ who, who help us become the people that God has created us to be a, a bond of unity that brings glory to the glory to God because it brings out the best in us that's what God intends for us. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, there are certain times we run across passages in your word that are just so practical to how we live our life on a daily basis. And that is very often the true and particularly true this morning. So Lord, whatever distractions may be in the way, whatever that preceded us in the week uh, behind us or is ahead of us uh, in, in the week ahead, just help us to set it aside. Help us to look at your word, to see it clearly for what it says, and to understand with that same clarity what it means and how it should impact how we live. Father, thank you for our time together. What a blessing, a true blessing it is to be here with the people of God. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn to Titus chapter uh, 3, and we will begin in verse 8. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Paul, continuing his letter, says, This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are are good and profitable for men. 
Now, we need to begin in this first verse by understanding what these things are. What, what does Paul mean by these things? Well, I think exactly what he means is everything. <laughs> everything that he has spoken to up to this point in his letter. This goes back to the importance of elder governance. Because you'll remember, the church in Crete was a relational mess. And so, Paul instructs Titus to appoint men who can shepherd and guide the church. Because there were people with selfish motives who had positioned themselves into places of influence in the church. These were the the rule breakers, the big talkers, the eloquent liars. Instead of promoting unity, they left a a trail of division and, and broken relationships behind them. And Paul instructed Titus to reprove them severely because their profession of faith does not align with their practice. Paul tells Titus, you know, as you do that, you need to understand that probably the best way to to deal with divisive people is to promote healthy community. You see, encouraging Healthy relationships is the way that you promote sound doctrine. It's what we've been talking about, where that truth of God is being passed down from one generation to the next in that multidisciplinary church, much like we have here. Older men investing in the lives of younger men. Older women investing in the lives of younger women. We heard of some of what that looks like here at Melanie Park. There are testimonies of Mrs. Courtney and the investment that she has made into the lives of, of Macy Tapp and Abby Miller. We heard how Bill Hamilton invested in the life of Michael Haverdink, how Bruce Shubiaka invested in the life of, of Thomas Haverdink, and, and how those relationships were mutually beneficial. The, it went both ways. There was good in every direction. And I think that's a, a flavor of what Paul has in mind when he's writing to Titus. Because Paul knows that a healthy church filled with healthy relationships makes a positive difference in the world. Biblical community is the basis by which we can subject ourselves to rulers and people in places of authority. Because when the church is healthy, we stop looking to the government to solve issues in our society. We realize that that's what God equipped the church to do is to make a positive difference in the world in which we live. That's why it says in verse 2, when we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, that we as believers in Christ should malign no one, that we should be uncontentious, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. See, God's love towards us should be a mirror for which we then go and love other people. We forgive in the same way that He has forgiven us. We love in the same way that He has loved us. And and as we look around our world today, the fact is there are a lot of people who are making a positive difference in the world. But hear me on this. There is never, ever any time that anyone at any place in this world should ever outlove the church. That's what God has uniquely called us and equipped us as his people to do. 
God's redemptive work in the world should begin and be led by his people. So when Paul says, this is a trustworthy statement, when he goes on and says, you you should speak this confidently, he's highlighting his assurance of this truth that he is speaking. This is not some pie-in-the-sky idea, some, some whimsical dream. This is the power of God put on display in the life of his people. Paul is so confident, as I am today, because he, like I, have seen God's hand at work in the lives of his people. Lives that have been changed, the, the foolish who have become wise. Those who have been enslaved to have sinned, who, who have been set free. These are people who become a powerful, a powerful witness for Christ in the world. Paul says, run. Run towards people who live their life in this way. Surround yourself with people whose faith informs how they live. Those whose conduct matches their confession. And we need to know that this doesn't just happen by accident. We see in our verse, verse 8, it says, be careful. This is intentional. Be careful to engage in good deeds. Make an intentional decision to do the right thing. Paul is describing those who are led by the Spirit. You know, in Galatians Chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Those who are led by the Spirit, those who walk in the Spirit, will not carry out the deeds of the flesh. These are good deeds. And these good deeds are the good work that God has prepared beforehand so that we can walk in them. It is the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of those who are being led by the Spirit. Paul says, run. Run to people who give evidence of God's work in their life. He goes on, he says, it's good. It's good and it's profitable for all those who are involved. His idea here is the the understanding that there is goodness. There is profit built within the boundaries of God's design. And it is a mutual blessing. It is a profitable outcome. So intentionally invest in relationships where this is true. But he also goes on to say, and run from those when it's not. Look at what he says in verse 9. But shun foolish controversies, genealogies, strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Run to healthy relationships And he goes on and says, avoid divisive issues. Paul says, shun foolish controversies. I think it's very possible that that Timothy and Titus are dealing with some similar issues. Because if you look at 2 Timothy 2, verse 23, he says in his letter, when Paul writes to, to Timothy, he says, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they only produce quarrels. It's important because most foolish controversies are based on ignorant speculation. That's why they just keep going on and on and on. There's no absolute truth. It's just a matter of opinion. But for some people, for some people, their opinion is absolute truth (laughs) because they're an expert in everything. 
And Paul goes on and says, these are the people who, who generate conversations that are unprofitable and worthless. What that tells me is that they don't resolve any important issues. They don't make a positive difference in someone's life. Very often, they do just the opposite. They take a very insignificant issue and make it a really, really big deal. It's what I call majoring on the minors. I recently visited with someone in our church about an actual case that they represented in court, in court that involved a church here in West Texas. And in this church, there was a group of elders who didn't like their pastor, didn't really agree with his philosophy of ministry and what he wanted to do in the life of this church. So they took matters into their own hands. And during the week, they went up to that church and they changed the lock on every exterior door. And so when Sunday came around, the pastor and nobody else could get into the church that morning. Right here in West Texas. And I think that's precisely the idea of what Paul has in mind here. He's talking about those who, who base their arguments, and he lists some things. He says, in, in genealogies and strife, disputes about the law. I think this is helpful because it gives us some idea of the basis of the, the arguments these people are having. When we talk about a genealogy and think about what that means, well, what is a genealogy? It's a history. It's a history of what makes you unique. It's learning about your heritage and what sets you apart. We know that this is important in our world today because there are businesses built around this. 23andMe. Ancestry DNA, same idea. And although I've watched those same commercials and thought, that might be kind of interesting. I think it would be. But it's just the opposite of what we should be focused on in the church. We should be focused on what brings us together, not what sets us apart. We should talk about what we have in common, not what makes us different. Because the Bible seems to be really adamant about removing labels that distinguish us. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. But we are all one in Christ Jesus. I think this may be the idea behind Paul's first letter to Timothy when he writes to him and says... As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God. And here's the important part, which is by faith. The work of God is only advanced on the basis of faith. A faith that all true Christians have in common. A faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. A faith that centers on him and what we do when we become one through him. So that, as the scripture tells us, all that receive him, all that receive him, to as many as believe, to them he gives the right to become children of God. What this means is that we are fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. The Bible says that 
the wall of division has been removed. So anyone who tries to put the wall back up is working against what God accomplished. We, could sh- we should focus on things that bring us together, not what sets us apart. Paul says, shun foolish controversies. Run from divisive issues. And then look at what he says in verse 10. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning and has become self-condemned. Now, this is some strong words, aren't there? Some strong language that Paul is communicating here. And so I think we need to understand what he's saying because when he says reject, what he's talking about is forsake the relationship. He's telling us to avoid association with these kinds of people. But before we get to understanding what he's talking about here, don't miss the fact that this only comes after a warning. And not just one warning. He's always up for second chances. He says, even after a second warning. This makes me think about Matthew chapter 18, which is a passage that we often look to for church discipline. Now, church discipline, when people ask, do y'all do church discipline? And my response is, yeah, every day. Because it happens, according to Scripture, every time one person goes to another person out of a concern of something they see in their life. It's an approach of love. And it says in Matthew 18, if, if they're unwilling to listen, then take someone else. Someone that shares that same concern. The goal of every single encounter is reconciliation because it goes on and says, do this in order that you might win your brother. I think it's the very same idea of what's happening in chapter or verse 10 of our passage. This warning must take place before there is a rejection. There is a desire to seek reconciliation before you walk away. But if you encounter someone who continues in sin and they refuse to repent, well, now this changes. It changes how you relate to them. Paul says, we must reject a factious man. So let's be clear on what a factious man is all about. And to put it bluntly, for a factious man or woman, it's all about them. It's someone who convinces others to rally around their cause. They section people away, typically from people they love, family and friends. They pull them away from those relationships. It's kind of an us versus them mentality. The issues may change over time, but somehow this kind of person is always in the middle of controversy. And very often, they're playing on this victim mentality. They're kind of taking, uh, taking up for the underdog. Those who are mistreated or misunderstood. But the truth of the matter is their motives are selfish. Because in the end, what they really want is they want to be the hero. <laughs> they want to be the hero. And that's why Paul says that there are factions for those who walk by the flesh. If you go to Galatians chapter 5 and you look at deeds of the flesh and deeds of the spirit, fruit of the spirit, what you're going to see under deeds of the flesh are are factions. They're selfish motives. 
It's all about them. In the context of the church, these are individuals who create all kinds of confusion. And they do that by stirring up some doubt and suspicion about other people. They're quick to, to judge motives and intentions. They like to use words like, they always, or they never. In the end, a factious man tears down what God has given his life to build up within the body of Christ. By putting the focus on themselves, they take the attention off of Christ. They disrupt the mission of God in his church with meaningless distractions. Paul says such a man is perverted, that they're sinning. They're self-condemned. Their, their actions are corrupted by sin. And we, we know it's sin because it's already said that they've been warned, they've been approached, they've been uh, talked to by people that love them, that want to help them be on the right track. But they've rejected it. You remember earlier in the letter that Paul writes to Titus, he talks about men who have turned away from the truth. I, I believe that's ultimately what happens here. The longer you go down a path to prove your own point, the better the chance is you're going to start believing lies to make that point. Paul says their mind, their, their conscience is defiled. They're self-condemned. And I think the reason he says that is because their actions betray their confession. The pattern of the life doesn't match with their profession of faith. We know that from that passage earlier in chapter 1 when it says they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him. They bring division instead of promoting unity. Now, this is a hard passage because these are some strong words. And I think when we look at a passage like this, we ask ourselves, okay, what are we supposed to do with that, right? Well, I said in the beginning, a big part of who we are is shaped by who we spend time with. Our lives are shaped by our relationships. Sometimes that's good. They bring out the best in us. Sometimes it's bad because bad company corrupts good morals. They end up leading you down a road and you know in your heart of hearts, this is not right. But that's where they take you. For better or for worse, our lives are shaped by our relationships. Just as this past week, Graham and I were talking about this next season of life for him in college. And I urged him, I said, Graham, please, if you do anything, please choose your friends wisely. Make sure you have friends that bring out the best in you. Friends that help deepen your convictions, who help strengthen your faith. And I think that those desires that I have for my own son are the very same desires that God has for every single one of us. But as often as we say in our own home, in order to have good friends, you've got to be a good friend. And so I want to focus on the positive this morning. In a hard patches like passage like this, I think the easy thing to do is start looking around at other people. Well, let's just look in the mirror for a minute. And, and let's ask ourselves the question, what does it look like to be a good friend? 
what does it look like to have a relationship, to be a relationship where, where you, people run to, right? What does it mean to be the kind of person that, that Paul says, run to that person, run to that man, run to, to that woman? One of the first things that I think of when I think about a person like that is a passage in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, when it says, let your love be sincere. It says, abhor or run from what is evil and cling to what is good. So I think one of the things we can learn is that a good friend sets their mind on good things. Things that are good. Things that are right. Things that are true. Instead of finding fault, being critical in their spirit, they're always seeing the silver lining. The good side of things. Being around a person like that makes you a better person yourself. Now, we have plenty of examples in our church. A couple that I can think of off the top of my head are Lisa Huddleston, David Boring. These are people who light up a room when they come in, and you will not hear a critical word come out of their mouth. They will not speak ill of other people. They will not create disruption or discord. In fact, they're peacemakers. They'll always find something positive, even in a bad situation. These are the kinds of people that you want to be around because they're good friends. They help you see good things in life. And that's what good friends do. Good friends find things that, that you enjoy. They don't necessarily want to drag, drag you along with everything they enjoy. They want to know what you enjoy. And then they'll go do that thing. So if you like baseball, they'll go to a baseball game. Do they particularly enjoy baseball? Maybe not, but it doesn't matter because you do, and I want to be with you. So let's go do that. That's what good friends do. They make a sacrifice for the good of someone else. They stop the com- to have a conversation in the midst of something that's busy, and, and, and I'm the worst at this. Man, when I get my head down and I'm working on something, I get tunnel vision. I lose all peripheral vision, and I lose sight of things going on around me, and it's so hard when somebody intersects with me in that moment to stop and look at that person and have that conversation. But a good friend does that. A good friend says, you are more important than this in this moment. So I'm going to give you my attention. There are other examples of this we see in our church, people who serve others well. The ones that come to my mind are Justin and Julie Tidwell. Those people are wound up, ready to serve someone. I mean, it just happens like that. A few weeks ago, I told Justin, I said, hey, there's somebody in our church that uh, needs some help with their yard, and would you, and I couldn't even get the sentence out of my mouth. Yeah, we'll take care of it. What do they need? And it wasn't a couple of days later. He had a team of people. The next thing I know, he sends me pictures of all the work they did, that they did for this, for this family and said, wasn't a big deal, no problem at all. Thanks for letting us know. That's the other thing that good friends do. They delight in doing good things for other people. It energizes them. Just, uh, Julie Tidwell did the same thing when Bruce mentioned, hey, we're thinking about going to uh, Eastridge during spring break. <laughs> Julie said, I'm on it. Now, you need to know that Julie was leaving to go to D.C. for a school trip the day after Eastridge. But she basically planned and led that entire thing because of a heart to serve those in need. That's what good friends do. And I think one of the things that good friends do is they pull you into that because you're like me you kind of get caught up in your own world doing your own things and you need someone to say hey come do this come join me and, and let's go do this together that's 
That's what good friends do. And we're fortunate because we're filled with a church of Lisa's and, and David Borings and Justin and Julie Tidwells. I've given you just examples, just a, a flavor, but this church is filled with people like that. But let me give you one more example of what it means to a good friend, be a good friend. And this is probably one that we don't consider as often. A good friend. A good friend is willing to hold someone else accountable. When Paul speaks in our passage about that first and that second warning, that person that he's talking about is a good friend. They approach someone who's in a bad situation. They're unwilling to let them just continue on in sin without saying anything. Because here's the reality, and I've mentioned this before, and I want you to think about it. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. It's letting someone walk away, and you don't care. That's the most unloving thing we could ever do. So one of the best ways that we show love, one of the things that it means to be a good friend, is you're willing to hold someone accountable. A good friend is willing to have a hard conversation with someone they love, even if it puts the relationship at risk. Because here's what they believe. More important than your relationship with me is your relationship with God. And as long as you are in a good place with him, then I believe he will put us in a good place again someday. And I'm willing to risk all that so that you can walk faithfully with him. That's what good friends do. So, in application of what we've talked about this morning, let me encourage you to spend some time this week and consider what it might mean for you to be a good friend. To be in a relationship that you would want people to run to, where they would find the things that Paul has spoken to in our passage this morning. How can you build unity? How can you bring peace within the body of Christ? Are you a wall builder or do you take them down? Do you promote unity or do you promote division? How can you take a negative conversation and find something positive, find something good? And, and is there a hard conversation that you might need to have with someone that you care about this week? Make a commitment to move towards relationships that draw you closer to Christ and run from those that do not. Move toward relationships that draw you closer to Christ, that bring out the best in you, and run from relationships that do not. Don't empower divisive people. Anyone who holds a faction is not a friend of God. And let me encourage you to take this to heart, because I've seen way too many examples of young men, young women, older men, older women, who are good people with good hearts, who get messed up with the wrong people, and it wrecks their life, their marriage, their family. Never worth it. So run to what makes you a better person. Run to relationships that draw you closer to Christ. And run fast. Run fast from anything that does not. Now, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to announce a couple of a family that's a new member to our church. They've actually been here a while, and it's only fitting because when they stand up here and you get to see who they are, they are a relationship you need to run to. 
You need to go spend time with them. You need to get to know them because you will be a better person because of them. So let me pray and then Carrie, you can come up. Lord, thank you for this morning and for just the practical truth of this passage. How you have made it very clear that there are relationships that we need to run to. People that we need to be with that draw us closer to you, that bring out the best in us. We are shaped by relationships, good or bad. So help us run to relationships that are good. And Lord, help us to have just as much conviction to run hard from those that do not draw us into relationship with you, that do not encourage us towards what we know is good and right and true. May we not make any compromise, but that we would run from those things that pull us away and that we would reject factious people, private meetings, behind closed doors, with lots of innuendos and suggestions about what other people think or who they are. Lord, let's reject it. If it doesn't build up what you have died for, then we should have no part of it. May we be peacemakers. May we spend a whole lot more time talking about what we have in common than anything that sets us apart. And Lord, as we look at what's going on in our world today, may we be convinced as a church, as a people, and as an individual in this body that if there is anything good and right going on in this world, that your people are the ones who need to be on those front lines. That we should be on the leading edge of making a positive impact in the society in which we live. And may we be committed to that this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.